in your bulletin, you will find uh, we uh, we put sermon notes in there. And um, don't be daunted by what you see uh, this morning. I was thinking, you know, back in the 15th and 16th centuries, they used to preach for an hour, hour and 15, hour and 20 minutes, and they would have 10, 12, 15 points in their sermon. And you move up to maybe the, the 19th and the 20th centuries, and most sermons were three-pointers. And so you were, you did well to preach within maybe 60 minutes, 45 to 60 minutes, and you had three points. Well, the trend for the last 12 years or so has been to have one point. And of course, you know what that means for time. Um, but uh, I've never been one that follows trends. And so if you look at it this morning, you might think, well, shoot, this is a sermon from about the 17th century, because there's 10 points. That means he's going to be preaching for this long. Um, don't do the math that way. We'll skip through a lot of these points quickly. But uh, there are those that just illustrate the text that we are um, looking at this morning and uh, helpful for doing that. And uh, don't panic. I think they're all up on the overhead, and so they'll come up for you as we go through the, the message. And uh, they're just helpful sometimes to keep you engaged and uh, to make notes. So that's why we provide these. Um, a couple of weeks, we'll be back into our growth groups, and uh, we'll be uh, looking at sermon notes in our growth groups for a while. Um, I had a, an opportunity to do, just spend um, some time thinking and praying and planning. And it uh, looks like um, starting in September, we're going to jump into the book of Exodus. And uh, we're going to try and accomplish the first 14 chapters in uh, in the fall. And uh, that in itself will be a, a stretch. But I think it will be a good exercise, one, of um, looking at large chunks of Scripture each Sunday um, to get a flow of what God is doing and how He was faithful to the people of Israel in very difficult times. Uh, and so I think that will be a benefit to us um, as a congregation. And I just think it's the right time to be looking at that particular book in the Old Testament. So you can always read ahead if you want, Exodus um, chapters 1 to 14 for, for the fall, and uh, look forward to what God um, will teach us through those uh, passages. For now, we're still in Acts. Got a couple more weeks in the book of Acts. And if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 20. Um, and uh, we're going to look at uh, verses 17 to 24 this morning. And uh, focus our thoughts there on Paul's autobiography, or an autobiographic account of a period of uh, three or three years of his life in the city of Ephesus. So we pick up at verse 17, and it says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus, and called the elders of the church to come to him. When they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears, and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish the course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Father, we thank you for a time now to uh, gather around your word. And um, we thank you for this opportunity to do so so freely and um, in the open like this. And we thank you that um, people of all ages and all different backgrounds, some who know you and some who don't know you, can be gathered together and hear your word. I pray, Father, that it will um, make sense, that it will impact our lives. Um, We pray this in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen.
in a few weeks, ministries will begin up in the church, and uh, just what happens in the church, it sometimes follows the school year, and so lots of things uh, will get started up again. And there will be opportunities for you to serve in uh, various ways and in various places, not only in our church, but in ministries around the community, to use your God-given, Spirit-given gifts um, to uh, get involved and to serve in the kingdom of God. And it's God that will help you carry out that ministry, and it's God that will direct you to the ministry that you are to be engaged in. Sometimes, though, when we talk about ministry, we use a, another word, and I want to just get us thinking about these two words. Sometimes we think about volunteering as opposed to serving. And we make that mistake from time to time up here, and saying we'd like some volunteers. Uh, and uh, as you will see, my preference would be that it would be better to say, you know, we have a various ministry, and we'd like those of you who have certain gifts if you want to serve in this ministry. I don't know if these um, words mean the same thing. In fact, I'm pretty well convinced that volunteer and servant, or volunteering and service, do not mean the same things. We do a disservice, I think, to people when we don't distinguish between a volunteer and between one who serves. God is not looking for volunteers. God is looking for servants. God is looking for people who will serve um, Him. And I wonder again, you might think, well, Paul, you're making a big deal about um, too much. And I, I don't know if, it, if I am, because I do think these words are not synonyms. Just pick a, pick a few places in Scripture that use the word servant or serve and replace it with volunteer and see how it rings with you. For example, Jesus says, whoever wants to be great among you must become your volunteer. doesn't ring well, does it? The text actually says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be a volunteer. No, must be a slave. For even the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to volunteer. Doesn't sound right, does it? But even the Son of Man came to serve, uh, or not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You do that in a number of places of Scripture, and you'll see how it's jarring to replace the word with uh, serve or serving with volunteer. And so I just want to make a couple comments, because I think our passage this morning is a passage that helps us understand serving, as opposed maybe even to volunteering. There's a book called The Heart of an Artist, in which the author discusses the difference between those who volunteer out of obligation to serve in the church and those who feel called by God to serve in the church. He writes that there is a deeper level of commitment, joy, and reward with those who know their calling is from God. He writes a few differences down, and I've just, uh, I want to quote a couple. Uh, they are a little bit jarring, but just bear with me, and uh, it's to help us distinguish a little between volunteering versus serving. Volunteers see their involvement at church as community service, but people called of God, he says, see it as ministry. Volunteers whine about what it's going to cost to serve people, but people called are committed to serving. Volunteers shrink back from resolving relational conflict, but people called of God seek to resolve relational conflict for the sake of unity in the church. Volunteers look upon rehearsal as another commitment they're obligated to fulfill, but people called of God look forward to rehearsal as an opportunity to be used of God. Volunteers want to quit at the first sign of adversity or discouragement, but people called by God dig in and persevere. Volunteers, he writes, can't handle being put in situations in which they're going to be stretched, 
But people called of God respond to God's call with a humble dependence upon him. Uh, an elder was asked once how you can tell the difference, um, uh, or, or, or how can I tell whether or not I have a servant's heart? And his response was, how do you respond when somebody treats you like a servant? I think there's some wisdom in that. Like There is sometimes pain and difficulty that comes with serving. One analogy that I, I want some of us to just keep in our minds as we're going through to help us understand this passage is the analogy of a family. Because I wonder sometimes, parents, uh, which, is a, which is a better way of looking at raising our family. And even as we take some of these truths about uh, how we raise our family, am I volunteering for this job? Or am I serving my family? Am I serving my husband and wife or my children? Or am I volunteering for this job? Again, I think it makes a big difference. So, in this section of verses, what Paul does is he's a, he describes how he served the people in Ephesus. And I think it's helpful because he is dealing with characteristics more than he is with things that are specific uh, with him. And so it's helpful for us as we consider our service in the church and in the community to glean some of the things that Paul talks about. The first thing that we realize is that after he's gathered the elders together, which would have taken three to four days to bring them down from Ephesus to Miletus, the first thing that he begins is, is he drives home the single driving force in his life. And in fact, it bookends the passage that we're looking at uh, this morning. And the single driving priority with Paul is that he was a good slave. It's a word that we find um, used in, in verse uh, 19 where he says, serving the Lord, or uh, uh, correctly it should say a bond servant of the Lord. And that really means he is a slave of the Lord. Paul considered himself to be a good slave of God. Now we find that kind of language shocking today because we don't like the term slave. We don't like what's implied by understanding I am a slave of someone or something else. But we understand that Paul's whole ministry of service was one out of self-sacrifice to God first. That's what characterized his service. He was a slave of the Lord. Again, this language is a little bit jarring. We've banished this word slave from our vocabularies. We don't really like it. We don't really like what it implies. And we say, I don't want to be a slave to anyone else or before anything else. But Paul was a bondservant or a slave of the Lord. It describes a certain type of relationship that he had with God. It describes a type of relationship, though, from which many of us recoil. We don't like the thought of being somebody else's slave. We don't like the thought of, I am here to serve somebody else. It reflects a truth, though, that we are not our own. It reflects a truth that we are bought and we are owned by somebody else. We are owned by God. We serve God. It reminds us of the truth that He is our Lord and Master by virtue of the fact that He is our Creator and He is the Sovereign Lord over all He has made. And I think sometimes amongst us as Christians, we have lost the the balance between I am a son and daughter of God, which is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful biblical truth of all that we inherit and all that we gain as sons and daughters of God. But we've sort of relegated or pushed aside the notion that I'm also a slave of God. And when we are a slave of God, it implies at least a couple of things. One, it implies an exclusive relationship. You can only be owned by one thing. You can only belong to one person. And we are owned by God. Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other. 
He will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. There's an exclusivity that's implied by this notion, I am a slave of God. I am His and His alone, and I only do what He asks me to do. Secondly, implied in this relationship is a, is a response of obedience. That it's not up to me to question, it's not up to me to argue, it's simply up to me to obey. God tells me what to do. I am a slave. That's what slaves do. They don't question, they don't balk, they do what they are told to do. And so our loyalty as servants is first and foremost to God. He is the one who we are serving before we serve anybody else. We belong to Him. Anyone or anything else is a distant second. And you'll notice in your life that the things that you serve eventually become your masters. It's just true about life. You can tell what controls you by the things that you devote your time to. So if you serve money, eventually money will become your master. If you serve alcohol, eventually alcohol will become your master. If you serve your job, eventually your job will become your master. Well, the same is true. If you serve God, by implication, God will eventually become your master. And so Paul recognizes right off the top that he is first and foremost, above anything else, a bondservant of the Lord. And I think that is the starting point for all of us as we serve God in ministry here in the church or out in the community or around the world. That first and foremost, we are owned and we serve and we're obedient to God. The second thing though, uh, Paul begins to describe what this commitment looks like then as it works itself out in service amongst people. The first is simply in verse 18 where we realize there that Paul says to them, he says, you yourselves know, it was experiential knowledge, they watched him. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Paul was all in. Sometimes we have a phrase in sports and we might say, he left nothing on the sidelines. When Paul embraced service to the Ephesians, he got, they got all of him, all of the time, from the start to the end. He says, you yourselves know how I lived among you for the whole time. Other translations um, um, give different nuances, but the, the, the point is that Paul dedicated himself to them. And so in that reality, there is a difference between serving and volunteering. In serving, you give yourself. In volunteering, you give your time. In serving, you commit to another's agenda. In volunteering, you commit to your own agenda. Paul here embraced fully the people of God. And sometimes we talk about having done something even though our heart wasn't in it. This was not true about Paul. As he served and as he engaged with the Ephesian people, he was all in. Relationships matter. His commitment to them led him to be all in. And so as we think of areas in which we might serve this coming fall, I hope it's with this kind of view that you get all of me. That what I commit to, I will commit with all of me. The second thing that I see in here is something of the character of service. And this is rather jarring as well, particularly in our culture. He says, I served among you with all humility. Serve the Lord with all humility. I think that's still one of the greatest needs that we have amongst the people of God as they serve one another. It's humility. We're living in similar times as Paul when humility is looked on with disdain. We don't see humility as a virtue. We see really it as a weakness. It is often seen to be rooted in relational disaster rather than relational success. 
Yet this is what we are called to do. Serve with all humility. Peter uh, describes it this way. He says, clothe yourselves with humility. Now, we all got dressed this morning and we put on clothes and, and you can see how we're dressed and, and it sort of says something about us, the way we dress. It just it's, a, it's just a statement. Well, when we get up to serve, we are to put on clothes of humility. It's seen in our attitude. It's seen in our behavior. It's seen in the way that we talk. It's seen in the way to respond to those whom we, who we are called to serve. Paul writes that humility is a way of thinking and behaving. He says, make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, making one another, loving one another, and working together with one mind and one purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. That really is a description of humility. A description is not um, of seeing others as better than yourselves, of not looking out only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Jesus modeled, modeled humility when he gathered his um, disciples around him and nobody had washed their dirty feet, which was the worst job that a servant could do. And what did Jesus do? He wrapped a towel around him, he got a bowl of water, and he went and he washed all of their feet. He demonstrated humility. Jesus demonstrated humility when he came to this earth. It says that he didn't think equality with God something to be grasped. He set aside who he was. He set aside his priorities. He set aside his name. He set aside his reputation as God. And he says, I will become a servant. Even obedient to the point of death. And so Jesus demonstrates to us what service is like. It is serving. And so when we get involved in, in, in serving this year... One of the things that we ought to do is, is think, okay, I am here to serve in this ministry, or to serve my neighbor, or to serve this particular group. And it doesn't mean that we don't have ideas and we don't have things to contribute. We do. But it's the way in which we say them. It's the way in which when our re- ideas are rejected, we keep serving. And so Paul says that he served with all humility. He also says that he, his service was with great compassion. I love this. He says, not only with all humility, but with tears. I don't know, I think I seem to be getting more teary as I get older. I was reading a particular book, which I'll mention a little bit more about in a minute, on a plane. And and every 10, 15 minutes, I just had tears running down my cheeks. As I read about situations, and I identified with the pain, or as I identified with what they were going with, and I thought, if anybody's watching me, they must think I'm a blubbering fool. But it's just, I was just, I was just into this, the life and what was being described in this particular story. We're talking about real tears here. A little later, Paul will say that he admonished the people with tears. And I think that what he's saying is that as I serve, I don't just kind of blow in and blow out, but I get engaged in the people through which I'm serving with. And when you get together for a ministry team practice, it's not you just come and sing a few songs and you go home, but you share about one another's lives and you all of a sudden are aware they've got pain. They've got real pain. Or they've got loved ones that don't know Christ and it causes you to well up with tears because you know that if they don't find Christ, they face a certain eternity separated from God. And so our servant isn't, our service isn't uncompassionate. Rather, it's full of empathy and compassion for those whom which we are serving. And so I appreciate this about Paul that he's, he's able to say, listen, I'm just not some cold lump of flesh that gets involved. There's a real me inside. And I engage and hurt with the people that I am serving. 
Jesus says in Hebrews that, or it's recorded that Jesus offered prayers up to the fathers with loud cries and tears. I think when you go home from serving, you might go home at the end of the night, you've got people on your mind and you go home and you just start praying for them. You pray through the night or you wake up in the morning and you pray and there might be the odd tear that comes from it just because you're aware of their pain and their anguish. And so our service is to be a compassionate service. It's also service in the midst of conflict. Paul says to them in verse 19 there, he says that, um, uh, he says, uh, and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. We have kept track of some of the um, trials that Paul went through. In one city he was stoned, left for dead, and dragged out of the, the city. In another place he was in prison. In another place he had his back beaten raw. In other places he was maligned. The fascinating thing about Paul was he never quit. He never gave up. He never said, enough of this. I'm going to just go to somewhere and I'm going to have nothing to do with, with serving God anymore. I just need to relax. It's my turn to rest. Rather, he kept serving in the midst of trials and difficulty. I think many of you who have served, you know that. You might be two weeks into serving, three weeks into serving, and all of a sudden something happens in your home, maybe to one of your kids, or maybe in your marriage, or, or you know, maybe you lose your job, or, or just you just face trials. That's just stuff of life. Well, loved ones, that's not the reason to pull out of serving. That's the time when you say, God, I've made this commitment. I want to keep serving through this. And there becomes a humanity to your serving. There becomes a softness to your serving. There becomes an understanding as you serve through pain and difficulty and trial that you don't get if you just quit at the first time of difficulty. The book that I was reading on the plane, it was um, recommended to me, and uh, the individual told me that you, know, you won't be able to put this book down, and very few books are like that with me, but this was one of those books. I, uh, he remembered he told it to me, and I found it in the airport, and so I bought it, and I didn't stop until I finished reading the book. It's a book, it's, it's just in an area that I love reading, but it's called Fearless. And it's a book about a Navy SEAL, Adam Brown. And it describes, it's, it's, just, it's an amazingly well-written book about his life and his trials and his hardships as a young boy and as a young man. And then as he got into, into the, the, the Navy and then as he entered the SEAL program and as he progressed through the SEAL program, just the, the number of obstacles he faced. And he never quit. He never gave up. In one instance, he was in a, a driving in a, in, a, in a convoy and they were swerved off the road and he was hanging onto the car and he rolled over and it severed all of his fingers. They reattached them all and he learned to shoot with his other hand. In another instance, in a training accident, he was shot in the eye and he lost the sight in an eye. That would have qualified him for disability for the rest of his life. And he says, I can't do that. I've made a 10-year commitment to serve. I'm going to serve. And with one eye, he taught himself to, to shoot and enter sniper, sniper school and pass sniper school with one eye. Because he was dedicated to serving the American people. He was dedicated to the cause of those people. There was no such thing in him in quitting when he found himself up against a severe test. And so we find that, loved ones, as we serve. You can be sure that if you commit to serving in a ministry this fall, that at some point in that ministry, some trial, some testing is going to come your way. Work through it. Don't give up. Don't withdraw. Don't quit. Allow God to use that pain and that difficulty to enable you to serve with greater effectiveness. The next thing that we see here 
in Acts chapter 20, verse 20, he says there, how I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Anything that would help, anything that would be advantageous, anything that would benefit them, he talked to them about. He didn't shy away from the tough topics. He didn't shy away from the tough people. He didn't shy away from the tough issues. He engaged them. He embraced them because he knew by working through issues with people, by working through tough issues, by working through all issues, that they would profit and benefit from that. There was no secret society with Paul. He didn't hold back the difficult things or share only certain things with a certain group of people. Later he would write to Timothy and he would use a different word, but it's the same sort of um, idea that's there. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God and the man or the woman of God may be equipped fully for every good work. Again, I I think we find this in families that those families that I think are the strongest and those families that that, that serve uh, their, their families the best are those that will not shy away from the tough truths with their kids. I was again reading a book. I didn't read the whole book. I, I skimmed it. I have got it on my list of books to order. But it's a book written by one of my favorite living theologians, Bruce Ware. He has just this ability to take theological truths and, and make them understandable. But he's written a book called Big Truths for Young Hearts. And it's a truth about how you take the full scope of theology and you teach it to your children. And it's a book that's not just theoretical. It's a book that that comes out of his own teaching with his girls. And his two girls wrote the foreword to the book. How when they were four and six years old, their dad used to teach these things to them as they were driving, as they were walking, as they would go on holidays. That they would teach these truths to them when they sat around the table. It's a brilliant book. and, and, And in fact, if you know theology, you know that there are lots of things in theology that are tough. Where do I go when I die, mommy? Where does God from where does God from come from, Daddy? Why are some people so evil? Questions that, that continue to bog our mind. You don't do your children any favor by avoiding those questions. Rather, we teach whatever is profitable to them. And so when you serve, when you get engaged in the ministry here in the church or elsewhere, don't run from problems. Don't run from difficult questions. Embrace them. And do whatever might be profitable in that situation. Luke specifically mentions two things that, that Paul embraced or that as he was amongst them. One, he replaced repentance or he embraced repentance towards God and faith towards Jesus Christ. Two truths which really summarize all of Christian doctrine in many ways. Repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ. Two sides of the same coin. Repentance towards God, a beautiful theme in Scripture about how God comes seeking us. He's a sinner seeking God. That God, we were estranged from God and God had every right to write us off and never have anything to do with us anymore. But the whole story of the Bible is how God comes down to us, how God comes to earth, how God seeks us to bring us back into a relationship with Him, to reconcile us to Him through repentance. And the Bible is full of verses and full of illustrations and full of stories about repentance and how we realize that we are going one way and we turn around and we go the other way. How we realize that a behavior and action is offensive to God and we give up that behavior and action and replace it with one that is the opposite and was pleasing to God. 
It's a reversal of the direction of our values, assumptions, and behaviors. Isaiah declares, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. In fact, God commands all men everywhere to repent. And notice, it's not just repent, it's not to say I'm sorry, it's repent to one, towards the one we've offended. Repentance towards God. Loved ones, that is one of the main themes and of great profit. And you will find opportunities to talk to men and women, boys and girls, throughout your service about repentance. And then he says, not only is it repentance towards God, but it's faith in the Lord Jesus. Because how do we get back to God? Through Jesus Christ. And so, one of the most profitable things you can ever share with somebody in your service is how through their repentance, by putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they find their way back to God. Faith really means to put your full weight on Jesus Christ. It means to pull the, put the full weight of your conviction upon Jesus Christ. It's to say, I believe in Christ and Christ alone for my salvation. So this is the essence of what Paul preached amongst them. Everything that was profitable summarized in repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ. And then there's the, 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 the context of his ministry, both public and private. I think there's a, something, and, and again, you know, I might be taking a little bit of liberties here. You can, that's why you're smart people. You can go back to the text and see if I've taken too many liberties here. But I was thinking of this in nature of our own serving. Some of the ministry in which you will engage this fall will be very public. There has Public ministry has great joys, but it also has great pitfalls. One of the greatest pitfalls of public ministry is pride. But you also have opportunities to be engaged in private ministry. In ministry where nobody will ever see you, nobody will ever know what you've done, but your service will be of immense value. But there's pitfalls there, and one of them is worm theology. Nobody ever sees me. Nobody ever knows. Nobody ever thanks me. But that's the nature of serving God. Sometimes our service is public, and sometimes it's private. I think of this as parenting. One of the verses that guided and directed us in our home was um, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 to 9. Listen, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home. That's private ministry. When you're on the road, that's public ministry. When you're going to bed and when you're getting up, that's private ministry. Tie them on your hands. Wear them on your foreheads. Write them on the doorposts of your house. Put them on your gates. That's public ministry. That declares that as a family, we love and serve God. And as Paul went about ministry in Ephesus, he took advantage of every opportunity to serve. Sometimes in the synagogue, sometimes in the hall of Tyrannus, sometimes in home, house to house he said he went. He didn't care where. He served publicly, he served privately. Loved ones, as you think of ways in which to get involved this fall, don't worry about whether it's public or private. Just serve God. It's comprehensive. Both Jews and Greeks I just want to just say this um, uh, here. Just, you know, your service, don't restrict it. Look for ways to serve both the people of God and those who don't yet know God. Look at, look at how God can use you to expand His kingdom both in the church and out in the world. 
our service should be comprehensive. Sometimes we get so narrow and we think, well, I can only serve in the church or I only want to serve in the church. It's safe to serve in the church. Ah, you know, we need your service, but so does the world. And so serve them well. It's constraining impulse. We've, we've talked about this a number of times and I, I don't want to go over too much ground here. But Paul simply says there in verse 23, I think it is, and now I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. I love that. Paul's life was guided by the Spirit of God. He lived under the influence of the Holy Spirit. If you're not sure of where you might serve or how you might use your gifts that the Spirit of God has given you, pray. Say, Spirit of God, would you guide me? Spirit of God, would you lead me? Spirit of God, I don't really know what I should do. There's lots of opportunities, but what would you have me do? How would you have me serve? Loved ones, you will find the Spirit of God will guide you. It's a beautiful thing when you serve under the guidance of the Spirit of God because there's a great confidence that you get. There's a great assurance that as you serve, you are doing what God has called you to do. And even though you might not think you have the strength, you might not think you have the abilities, you might not think you have the talities, God will give you those abilities and the strength and the help that you need. So as we serve, serve under the power and the leading and the guiding of the Holy Spirit. And lastly, see, I told you we'd get through the ten points in in short amount of time. Lastly, we come full circle. And I so appreciate this in the end of the day. It's the priority revisited. His priority was to be a servant of God. Why? So that he could declare the gospel of the grace of God. He says there, I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. Why? Uh, and we, we say, to her, well, that sounds pretty dumb, Paul. You ought to look after yourself. And you ought to, no, that's, that's what a slave does. That, that's what God drives a servant. It's not about him. It's about his master. Paul's not saying, you know, I'm going to drive myself to the grave here. He's not saying I'm going to be unwise with my body and with my time. Although some people have served that way. I think it's Robert Murray McShane who, who made a commitment. He says, I'm going to burn out for Jesus. And at 28 years old, he died. But he left an incredible legacy of service to God. But again, I'm not saying that that should be what God calls us to. But I am saying that I think Paul's lesson here to us is that that it's about self-sacrifice. It's about denying ourselves and serving God. And as he says, I don't count my life of any value. Why? Because my life is bound up with the life of Christ. And what matters is that God be glorified. And that God's kingdom be promoted. He says, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received of the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace. Two familiar metaphors to us. One is the metaphor of the athlete finishing a race. Many of us here were involved in athletics at school. Some of us at higher levels than others. And we know that part of the reality of competing in anything was finishing. You didn't train your butt off so that you could quit halfway through the race or, or leave the leave the hockey game in the middle of the first period and say, well, I've done my bit, I'm out of here. No, the goal was to finish the race. If you were in a hundred-yard dash, the goal was to get over the finish line. That's why we run. That's why we participate in sports. How silly it would be if you bought season's, tux, season's tickets to the Vancouver Canucks. Not just for that reason, but it would be silly if you bought season's tickets to the Vancouver Canucks, and then 
every home game you went to, randomly the team just decided at any point in that 60 minutes they would quit and go home. Well, sometimes they did do that. <laughs> but like, you think, well, this is kind of stupid. I mean, it makes no sense to, to have a hockey team that you say is going to play 60 minutes and after 31 minutes they walk off the ice and, well, I've done my bit, I'm out of here. No, you compete to finish the game. And in a, in a sort of a, uh, you know, using that the terrible analogy, but that's what we do when we serve. We finish our commitment. If you commit to serve for an evening, be there for the night. If you commit to serve for three weeks, finish the three weeks. If you commit to serve for a year, finish the year. Finish what you commit to do. A second analogy that he uses here is he says, I don't want to come up short. And I love this because Paul, in the end of the day, his service came back to his debt that he owed to God. And if anyone of of us here is a Christian, we owe an incredible debt to God. And he says that I may finish what I've done. I don't want to come up short so that I can testify to the gospel of God's grace. Do you know that we will never complete that? There will never, unless you can talk to every person that is alive today, there will always be somebody else to testify about what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. This is part of what drove Paul. He wanted to know, he wanted people to know about the grace of God through Jesus Christ. It had profoundly impacted him. In his letter to Timothy, he says, I I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly, I was a blasphemer, persecuted, an insolent opponent. Paul could never get past the fact of who he was and what God had done for him. He, he, he couldn't come to grips with grace. He experienced it, he understood it, he taught it, he explained it, but, but experientially in his heart, he could never get over the fact that God's grace had erased his past. And I think that should be the same for all of us. It doesn't mean that we live in the past. It doesn't mean that we dwell in the past. But there should be this constant glowing reminder of who we were, but what we are now in Christ because of the grace of God. And out of that awareness, we serve God with all that we have to our dying breath. And he goes on and he continues to say that the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I know it's not good to sit around a dinner table and brag about who's the worst sinner. That's got its dangers. That's not what Paul is doing here. He's not glorying in his sin. He's grieving over his sin. And he's saying, man, you don't know how I hurt people. You don't know how I hurt my body. You don't know how I hurt the kingdom of God. Oh, but the grace of God erased all of that. The grace of God forgave all of that. And if I was the worst of sinners, then the grace of God can help you. The grace of God can wash away your sins. The grace of God can deal with anything that you think you've done that is beyond the pale of comparison of God's grace. 
And when you become gripped by the grace of God, you become driven to share it with other people because you're aware of what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. So he says, But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. All that mattered to God or to Paul in his service was that God be glorified. All that mattered to God as he served was that somehow, some way, the grace and the mercy of God would be extolled and extended to anyone and everyone who would turn to Jesus Christ. As you serve him this year, if it's just for a night, it's for a couple of weeks, it's for a semester, may you look for opportunities in that service to share the grace of the God extended to you. It will change the way that you serve.